0: Welcome to the Geneva Peace Week Podcast Series, a project of the Geneva Peace Building Platform. Geneva Peace Week is a leading annual forum in the international peacebuilding calendar. It's a week of workshops, videos, and podcasts just like this one, hosted by different organizations and actors around the world. It's founded on the core belief that each and every person, actor, and institution has a role to play in building peace and resolving conflict. You're listening to a podcast produced for Geneva Peace Week 2021, held from the 1st to the 5th of November, with both live workshops and pre-recorded contributions. For more content like this, join the conversation at www.genevapeaceweek.ch.
1: Hello, thank you for joining us today for our podcast episode on militarized masculinities identifying causes, manifestations, and strategies for change. This research project is part of a multi-year partnership between the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, WILF, the oldest women's peacemaking organization in the world, and MenGage Alliance, a global network of over 1,000 organizations working in more than 70 countries around the world to increase men's support for women's rights and gender justice. My name is Gaia, and I'm one of the four students from the Graduate Institute of Geneva working on this research project, together with Margarita, Conrad, and Clara. Today with us
2: we have Dean Peacock, the director of a multi-country initiative of WEPF and the Men Engage Alliance to confront militarized masculinities and mobilize men for feminist peace. He is a honorary senior lecturer at the University of Cape Town School of Public Health. He is the co-founder and former executive director of Sonke Gender Justice, a multi-award-winning South African NGO working in 25 countries across Africa, and the co-founder of the Men Engage Alliance. He has published widely on gender equality, masculinities, violence, and on health and human rights. Hello, Dean.
3: Hi, Clara. Great to be with you all i um, looking forward to this morning's conversation. Thank you so much.
4: Thank you so much for being with us today. So let's get started. How do you think war, gender, and military interact?
3: Wow, we're starting with the small questions. Um, so, you know, I grew up in apartheid South Africa and experienced in some ways the ways in which war, militarism, and gender identities interact. So here in South Africa, the apartheid defense force relied on and used and exploited very traditional and very rigid ideas about manhood and about femininity, actually, to mobilize white South Africans to support the war effort um, and to support repression against black South Africans. So, you know, by constructing ideas about manhood um, such that manhood was equated with dominance, aggression, the use of force. An unwillingness to compromise or ever ask for help. So it reinforced a lot of pre-existing and traditional ideas about manhood, um, but in some ways exaggerated those, right, to um, gear people up and to facilitate men's involvement in war um, and in um, the continued repression of Black South Africans and aggression in the neighboring countries. Um, So When I finished high school, there was an expectation that young white men in South Africa serve two years of military service immediately, and that they then remain connected to the military for many more years. The military that was sexist, homophobic, um, and of course racist, um, as part of its very basic functioning. Um, And so it propagated those ideas across um, South African society, especially white South Africa. Um, and, you know, while that's, that's certainly true and that was kind of the predominant and pervasive experience in South Africa, of course it also um, fostered in some ways resistance to that. So war can um, generate important um, alternative ideas about gender, about men's roles and responsibilities. And here in South Africa, there was a group called the End Conscription Campaign that did exactly that. So the End Conscription was, Campaign was a place where men and women organized together to oppose apartheid militarism. And it was a place where in some ways, in novel ways, men came together with women and really questioned some of the kind of hegemonic ideas about masculinity, created space for gay men and straight identified men to work together for a different vision of society, including a different vision of gender roles. So on the one hand, war reinforces these traditional ideas about manhood and masculinity and it exploits them, right? To get men to do things that I think normally men don't want to do, kill other people. Um, It takes an awful lot of indoctrination, but it can also, as I say, produce a resistance and a flourishing of new ideas um, that in a post-war society can be harnessed to create a more equitable gender order.
0: Wait, have you ever heard of hegemonic masculinities? Hegemonic masculinities describe those types of masculinities that adhere to what is considered the idealized gendered behavior of men, envisioning men to be strong and dominant vis-a-vis other members of society. The nuances of hegemonic masculinities depend on contextual, temporal, geographical, cultural, and historical dimensions, but a general trend towards powerful, dominant, and forceful men persists. The system of power and practices generated through hegemonic masculinities allows men to hold dominant positions in society and seemingly justifies the subordination of all of those who do not conform to this definition of masculinity. The othering of other genders and those not conforming with the norm and the associated dominant behavioral traits lends itself well to the mobilization for war-making efforts and the propagation of violence on behalf of politicians and self-serving industry actors. Thus, it can be argued that these hegemonic masculinities are situated at the root of many conflicts across the globe.
4: As Judy Watchman notes, war provides the ultimate test of manliness and is the legitimate expression of male violence. Indeed, military masculinity, at its most basic level, refers to the assertion that traits stereotypically associated with masculinity can be acquired and proven through military service or action, and combat in particular. When states and military leaders aim to display strength for the use of military force or hope to recruit male citizens for appeals to their masculine identity, they are relying on and reproducing militarized masculinity. While men are not inherently militaristic, militarized masculinity is central to the perpetuation of violence in international relations. Ray Ashton conveys it clearly. Gender norms are produced
2: in various sites, including through the policies of states, security discourses, education, media debates, popular culture, and family relations. The military plays a primary role in shaping images of masculinity in the larger society, to the point where the dominant adult male role model could largely be the product of the military. Would you say that's the case? What has been the experience of the four focus countries of this project, namely Afghanistan, Afghanistan, Cameroon, DRC, and Colombia?
3: I mean, I think that's very much the case. You know, I think, as, as I just indicated, it's important to also to not overdetermine determine um, the power of the military in shaping gender identities, that um, people resist oppressive structures, wherever they are. Um, and we see that certainly in Afghanistan, um, You know, a fascinating fact about Wilp's work in Afghanistan is that there are 10,000 members of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. It's remarkable in and of itself. But what people don't realize and what hasn't received a lot of attention, even in this post-Taliban takeover period, is that a third of that membership is men. Um, So there are 3,000 Afghan men who have chosen to join an organization called the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. That's not what we think of when we think of Afghanistan in 2021. Um, And so, you know, certainly the last two decades has allowed uh, a little bit more space for people to question and embody different gender roles. But even, you know, prior to that, there were men in Afghanistan who were supporting women's rights. Um, And the same is true in the other countries in Cameroon. Um, We have been doing some research to understand the role of traditional leaders in challenging men's monopoly over land as a resource. There are a number of traditional leaders who are speaking out against that. Um, So from the very institution um, that we often consider to be kind of the epicenter of conservatism, we're seeing traditional leaders say, no, in fact, um, our communities function better, um, are more peaceful and more productive. Um, and more harmonious when women also have access to the land and when women are able to access education, when women can inherit. Um, In Colombia, of course, there's a long and rich tradition of peace activism and many of the armed groups ideologically have been for gender equality for a very long time, particularly the leftist um, progressive armed groups there. Um, And what we see, in fact, within some of those armed groups are very equitable gendered practices during conflict. That sometimes falls apart after conflict. Um, and that was the case here in South Africa. And so I think um, Ray's point, you know, as is true of almost everything Ray says is, is profound. And I think Ray would also recognize that activists and ordinary people push back against these ideas that get propagated by the military and find ways to seed these new ideas and grow them. And so, you know, no matter how repressive the setting, I think we see resistance and we see people um, push more progressive ideas about gender.
0: Wait, have you ever heard of feminist peace? The concept of feminist peace is concerned with the combination of feminist international relations theory and peace studies insofar as it looks at peace through a gendered lens. In a world where militarized gender norms get instrumentalized to create a societal rift and mobilize predominantly men for war and violent conflict, the performative gender norms that lay ground to these mechanisms need to be dismantled. Feminist peace envisions a departure away from militarized and hegemonic masculinities, towards a more feminist understanding of gender that does not facilitate the perpetration of violence but rather fosters peace and societal cohesion irrespective of performative gender norms. Across all four focus countries, project participants are also conducting research to understand the relationship between the arms industry and militarized masculinities. And they are asking questions about the role of the corporate sector in the proliferation of weapons and weaponized identities. Why is including the corporate sector essential to this research, including the media, but also looking at private security firms, arms industry, and uh, all these different actors that are also involved in this uh, process of generating militarized masculinities?
3: It's a, that's, a, I think, a really important question. And let me start here. Um, I, as, as you mentioned at the beginning, have been involved in work um, related to men and men's violence for a very long time, since 1985 here in South Africa, and then in a more kind of development sector way since the early 1990s. And a lot of that work focuses on shifting social norms and on community education and on group education and on changing the ideas that men hold about themselves and the ideas that men hold about violence um, and about women. And that's really important work. That work has often looked like a workshop at a local community level or an engagement perhaps with a community radio station. It's been small, it's been local, and it's been very focused on changing ideas within people's heads. I think it's fair to say though, that a lot of that hasn't sufficiently linked those social norms to their origins. So we've tended to talk about those social norms in sort of a historical and sometimes quite apolitical ways. And what I think that means is we've relied on neoliberal strategies to change structural problems. And this is where the corporate sector comes in so powerfully. So if I think about a community that we did a lot of work in, in South Africa, in Johannesburg a community called Deep Slurt, the alcohol industry has targeted Deep Slurt other communities like it in south africa and across the world Um, alcohol outlets are far denser in poor and marginalized communities than they are in middle-class suburbs Um, and so the alcohol industry recognizes that they can get away with saturating those communities and they target them with marketing um, advertising and um, as a result people simply have far easier access to cheap alcohol And not surprisingly, given the relationship between alcohol and violence, we then see more violence. Now, that's not to say alcohol is the cause of men's violence, but it's certainly an enabler. It's certainly an accelerant. And that's one of many examples of the ways in which the corporate sector makes a profit off of poor communities and causes great harm along the way. I'll give you another example from Cameroon. Um, in the northwest and southwest of Cameroon, in the Anglophone region, there are minerals, there's good land, and the central government has dispossessed many communities of their land, and they have awarded those lands to multinational agribusiness corporations. Um, and they have taken kickbacks to the central government and to sometimes traditional leaders in local communities, and it has dispossessed women and men of their lands. Um, women and men, of course, deriving significant part of their gendered identity from their relationship to um, the land and to farming practices. It's meant that for many men, they have been unable to do what is socially expected of them as men, to provide, to protect, to raise their families, to have an income. Um, And so not surprisingly, that has generated conflict. Um, And of course, along the way, it also does enormous damage to the land, um, and is part of the problem of climate change. The arms industry, of course, another example, right? Um, so when transnational arms companies are able to move weapons into conflict zones to defy um, international conventions and to do so with impunity, uh, we shouldn't be surprised when we see more conflict. We also know that the mere possession of a weapon changes people's relationships to their gendered identities, right? So men feel more aggressive, they feel more emboldened, Um, they feel less likely to back down from conflict when they have a weapon. And so, you know, the list is long, the relationship between the extractive sector, um, the mining sector in the DRC is a classic example, but not just, Um, and then the proliferation of small arms and light weapons, as those weapons are given to paramilitary groups, to private security groups, and then leak out into communities and leading to increased conflict and increased lethal conflict. So the the relationship between um, transnational capital and violence and conflict and distorted gender roles is pretty clear. Of course, it's much easier to gather a group of men together in a community and run a workshop on gender norms than it is to challenge some of these transnational corporations. Um, Alan Gregg and Michael Flood have written some important work now in which they say, our work isn't to build a field of men and women trying to transform masculinities. Our work is to build movements and to connect with other movements. So in Cameroon, we should be connecting with people who are doing work to challenge um, land dispossession, right? Um, So we should be doing work with environmental activists, um, labor unions, and we have to think, I think more ambitiously about who we partner with and the sorts of strategies we use. So, you know, the Mexican government just sued gun manufacturers in the U.S. because of their failure to control the the proliferation of weapons into Mexico. That's really interesting. How do we support efforts like that? And how do we link outside of the narrow confines of the field of people working on men and masculinities?
4: Wait, have you ever heard of military industrial complex? When speaking of military-industrial complex, we refer to a network of individuals and institutions involved in the production of weapons and military technologies. The military-industrial complex in a country typically attempts to marshal political support for continued or increased military spending by national government. Because the goals and interests of these various actors broadly coincide, they tend to support each other's activities and to form mutually beneficial relationships, what some critics have called an iron triangle between government officials, legislators, and military-industrial firms. Thank you so much, Dean.
1: I think it's the unfortunate reality of the connection between the corporate world and the proliferation of militarized masculinities. This is specifically why, as a student, we decided to look at the United States, specifically due to his hegemonic roles. And particularly, we're going to look at how does the U.S. military recruitment efforts use exploit and generate ideas about manhood to facilitate men's participation in war and conflict. So how do you think the concept of militarized masculinity translates in this multiracial society, and specifically yeah. the role also of the military industrial complex within um, this layout?
3: Yeah, no, it's, it's an important question. And I let me back up just a little bit to link this question to the preceding one. and. You know, I think you're all familiar with the Bushmaster ad, the gun company that used this man card concept, right? Saying to men, you know, if you are not living up to kind of rigid and inequitable and extremely outdated ideas of manhood, then you've lost your man card. And how do you get your man card back? Well, you own a Bushmaster semi automatic rifle. That was a gun that was used in the Newtown killings. And families of the children massacred in that attack have since sued Bushmaster and have have for the first time seen some justice in the US courts. But the reason I raise that is there's, of course, a close relationship between um, the arms industry and the US military. And so these ideas that get propagated through private sector advertising and marketing are inextricably linked to the um, ideas that the U.S. military uses to recruit men. The U.S. military, of course, also relies on the fundamental social inequalities in the U.S. to recruit people. And those are racialized inequalities. And, you know, the U.S. has a dreadful social safety network. And so the military steps in and says to Um, people, if you join the military, we will offer you, in exchange, access to education, we'll provide you with health services through the Veterans Administration. So the US military certainly relies on kind of the impoverished social safety net to pressure people to join the military.
1: Wait, have you ever heard of intersectionality? Intersectionality is an analytical framework conceptualized and coined by Kimberly Crenshaw in 1989 and developed with the aim of including the experiences of black women in the legal discipline, which drew attention to black women's multidimensionality and thus the interaction of race and gender as a double means of oppression for this historically marginalised and overlooked group. This project was later brought forward as a means to understand intersecting social systems of power, how they're constructed, transmitted, legitimised and reproduced in a much broader scope. Intersectionality identifies multiple factors of advantage and disadvantage. Such categories are gender, sex, caste, class, sexuality, religion, disability. As such, intersectionality has become a constellation of knowledge projects, each granting a different and complementary lens to understand power relations.
0: So uh, in general, much has been written about men, masculinities and violence in the last three decades. A lot of it has been focused on relationships between gender norms, masculinities, and men's use of violence and intimate partner relations. Less has been written about men, masculinities, and armed conflict, in specific what we already have touched upon now. And even less has been written on like broader structural forces that motivate or compel men to participate in armed conflict, or what can be done to support men to work with women to oppose militarism and demand peace. What is your personal experience of opposing gender norms and militarized ideologies, particularly as someone who identifies as a man?
3: Um, It's an interesting question. It pushes me to reflect on my experiences. Mostly, perhaps because of, you know, living in Berkeley and working in San Francisco in the 90s when I started this work, I have experienced a lot of support. You know, certainly I've had the kind of stereotypical story of people ridiculing the work that I do as not being sufficiently manly. Or, but but that's happened very little. I mean, I remember I used to work with homeless and runaway youth in San Francisco, and I um, told one of the young people at the residential group home where I was working that I worked at an organization called Men Overcoming Violence. And he roared with laughter. And he said, oh, what do you guys do? Do you walk around picking flowers for other men in other places? There are many more costs associated with being active proponents of gender equality as men. I have been fortunate to work with an established community with people who are doing gender equality work. And so those are my friends. It's the community I work in. I get a lot of validation from others. And of course, it's transformed my own life. And so I began this work here in South Africa, but I returned to it in the US because I had been assaulted a number of times on the streets when I was a student And I was really grappling with mild forms of post-traumatic stress disorder. I was really curious about violence, what drove people to use it, what effect it had had on me. And so I remember volunteering at MOVE and being astonished by the conversations I was hearing between the staff who were working with men who had been sentenced by the courts to attend a battery intervention program. And the stories I heard from the men who had been mandated to come to Men Overcoming Violence. Um, men who repeatedly said these rigid and traditional ideas about manhood do not work. They have caused me to cause great harm, um, they would say. And I, I interviewed probably a thousand men at MOVE who each told me a version of the story of being a boy who was terrified of their father because they knew when their father came home there was going to be violence. And of them in their childhood telling themselves they would never be that man. And then becoming that man. Um, and, you know, that's not to excuse their violence, but it's to situate their violence in what we now know is an intergenerational cycle of violence. And so I think, you know, whether it's health indicators, whether it's men's ability to connect with other people, to have meaningful, joyful relationships, we I think know that these rigid ideas, rigid and restrictive ideas about manhood are a recipe for disaster. Um, And so I too have benefited like those men did from kind of easing up those restrictions um, in my own life.
4: And uh, on a slightly different topic, in one of the previous questions you have mentioned international peacekeeping efforts. So um, as you know, not long ago, the UN has acknowledged numerous instances of sexual exploitation and abuse by peacekeepers in Haiti and elsewhere so what can we learn from these violations of local women's rights, and how can the un be held accountable for its mandate um, thus enhancing women's ability to access their rights in humanitarian and post-conflict situations while increasing men's commitment to
3: work in a gender equitable manner i think wilf brings a really interesting perspective um, to this and i've been really excited to learn more about wilf's application of a political economy analysis to the topic of militarized peacekeeping. But let me back up just a little bit first. So a lot of the work on men and peacekeeping has focused on training men, right? So kind of recognizing that many men in peacekeeping forces come out of the military, or they come out of the police, sometimes out of special operations units. And they've been socialized in predictable ways into a kind of militarized masculinity, as we've talked about. And so a lot of the DDR, the demobilization, disarmament and reintegration efforts have included this focus on kind of educating and training men in peacekeeping um, to change their ideas. And I think that's important. Um, What Wilf has said and, and the analysis that Wilf brings is that the whole political economy that surrounds peacekeeping makes sexual exploitation quite likely in many settings. Um, And we've been thinking about this in the context of Haiti, which has been back in the news with the assassination of the president and a recent earthquake, and then the atrocious and racist treatment of Haitian uh, migrants um, by the US border forces in the last few days. As you'll know, um, in Haiti, the UN established a peacekeeping mission in 2004, Minushta, and spent billions of dollars there. WILF has been saying, well, where did that money go? And what does that money do in the local economy? To cite some concrete numbers, the minister cost um, $7 billion in, in UN member state funds, and they supported a militarized peace operation there. And there were many cases of sexual exploitation um, and abuse and a whole slew of cases of men who fathered children and then left. Right and abandoned the, the mothers of those children, assume no responsibility. And um, so Wilfers said, well, kind of how does that happen with such frequency in peacekeeping um, operations? Humanitarian actors and UN peacekeeping troops get paid exponentially more than local Haitians are earning. And what that means is that the economy gets geared towards meeting their needs. Men who have been you know, militarized and who serve in militarized roles um, across the world, whether that's in Bosnia, in Thailand, during and after the Vietnam War, that's meant that men have used that money often for sexual exploitation. Um, and it has distorted the economy in that way, but it's also created an economy geared towards meeting the needs of foreign peacekeeping personnel. It's meant that the local housing market has often become unaffordable. It's meant women turning to transactional sex as a way of um, sustaining themselves. And so the the very power dynamics inherent in the current arrangement, Wilf argues, are a massive driver of sexual exploitation. So Wilf's proposal and we'll be working with the UN this year to explore some of this, is to say that money really needs to find its way, um, you know, local Haitian organizations, into Haitian residents, including especially women. And so uh, Wolf is calling for an entirely different orientation when it comes to peacekeeping. Instead of militarized peacekeeping, um, aid that advances people's socioeconomic rights, and that meets the needs of especially women and builds women's leadership to respond to the humanitarian crisis or post-conflict reconstruction, you know, fundamentally it's about changing the political economy and the power dynamics that come with it.
1: Wait, have you ever heard of Blue Savior Complex? Oh yes, Blue Savior Complex
2: is a term we coined while researching militarized masculinities in the context of UN peacekeeping
1: operations. The term Blue Savior Complex signals the tendency of Blue Helmets or any other mission with a humanitarian interventionist mandate to help non-Western countries in a self-serving manner. The Savior Complex is intrinsic to the nature of such missions.
2: The definition was inspired by White Savior Complex, which refers to a white person who provides help to non-white people in a self-serving manner. The role is considered a modern-day version of what is expressed in the poem The White Man's Burden by Kipling. Writer Deju Cole combined the term with industrial complex, derived from military industrial complex and similarly applied elsewhere to coin white saver industrial complex.
1: It's good to note that the white man's burden is passed down to the racialized identities of the soldiers who actually constitute these humanitarian interventions.
2: How does Wilf's project in general contribute to moving beyond securitization and achieve a feminist peace?
3: I mean, I think we do that in a number of ways. We're in the middle of a joint course um, for about 35 emerging gender activist leaders from across the continent, almost all from post-conflict settings. And it's a course that's been co-convened by Men Engage Africa and the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom and Songkha Gender Justice and the Institute for Peace and Security Studies at the University of Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. Um, And what's remarkable is the number of mostly young people who are doing phenomenal work on these issues, women and men, they're journalists, they're human rights lawyers, they are social workers, they're peace activists, and fundamentally they are pushing for different ways of thinking about militarized masculinities and about how to achieve peace. And, you know, in the same way that that's not often what we think about when we think about men in Afghanistan, it's also not what we often think about when we think about men and women working together in Africa. So they are defying a lot of the stereotypes. And um, one of the participants, amazing guy, Raymond from Uganda, uh, gave just the most thoughtful response to this question of kind of accountability. And what does it look like when men are accountable to women's rights activists in gender equality work? And so, you know, we are trying to connect people who are doing work to challenge these outdated ideas, these restrictive ideas, these harmful ideas about masculinities, and to encourage cross-fertilization across the region, um, to allow people to learn about best practice, effective strategies, and then to link, of course, with international actors who um, they can support and be supported by. Um, so there are many manifestations to this project. It's a 10-country project, four focus countries. Um, but in each of them, activists from you know, the Central Africa Republic or Lebanon or Sri Lanka or Nigeria, Sudan, um, are doing remarkable things. And our job is simply to support them with resources, some technical assistance to connect them with other experts, who can advance their work. I think um, we are seeing um, and have now for quite a few decades um, really interesting work to reshape ideas about men and masculinities so that men and women can work together for peace and for not just gender equality, but less restrictive, more flexible gender roles. And to imagine living our lives beyond these binaries we've been stuck with for so long. And we're bringing a sharp focus to these structural drivers of conflict and violence that we've been talking about. Um, so we've been saying it's important, it's necessary to challenge social norms, but it's not enough if we don't recognize where those norms emanate from and do something to change them.
1: Well, thank you again for joining us today and supporting us throughout the project. And thank you to the audience for tuning in. If you'd like to hear more about us, follow our Instagram account at militarized_masculinities.
3: Thanks for joining us for this installment of the Geneva Peace Week podcast series. Don't forget to subscribe, rate the podcast, and leave a review about something you
0: learned. You can also visit our website to continue the conversation with the makers of this episode.
3: Or join us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Geneva Peace Week. Above all, thank you for being here, and we hope you'll join us again for another episode.